thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Education is in crisis. Since 2010, real terms pay for teachers has fallen by 23%. Nearly one in three teachers who've qualified in that time have since left for profession. Teacher recruitment is 29% below target and for secondary teachers it's 41%. The average working week for a full-time secondary school teacher is 49.3 hours. That's in excess of a working time directive. Over the next 90 minutes, Daniel Kebedy and Neve Sweeney will set out how they will change education for the better if they are elected as the next General Secretary of the National Education Union, the largest union for teachers and education professionals in the United Kingdom. They'll be setting out their policy platforms as they tackle your questions on paying conditions, on workload, on behaviour and more. Teachers Talk Radio presents the NEU General Secretary debate and we are live we have daniel in the studio right now daniel good evening good evening tom how are you i'm very well how are you yeah good i've got a little confession to make i'm on my own with a four-year-old i have got him into bed but uh you never know how these things go no Um, you know that's the thing about teaching and you know but the best laid plans can always go to waste at some point but um, yeah you know, absolutely. i appreciate the situation you're in and neve is here as well so we're going to invite neve in to speak as well and then we will get started um i do have a little bit of echo but i think we're okay for now so long as we keep muted when we're not speaking good evening neve how are you hello i'm fine i'm and i have an apology to make too um we're just getting some news in about an offer in Scotland, so I'm just trying to frantically read some emails and um, speak to you at the same time. That's OK. I'm sure that Tom Rogers, who's behind the scenes here tonight, um, will be keeping an eye out as well, and we'll be keeping an eye out too. So if we have any news as well, um, we will get to you. But hopefully they would go to the trade unionists first before they go to the media. That's the hope, at least. Um, let's talk about how it's going to work tonight. We have six questions in total. Um, we have um, questions about the candidates themselves, about workload, about behaviour, um, about promoting the voices of women and ethnic minority members, about private education and about international affairs and international solidarity Um, but before we get on to those questions we have 60 seconds for each candidate uh, to make an opening statement now i did a random name generator at the just before we came on air and neve was the name who was chosen to speak first so what will happen is for the opening statements neve will speak first then daniel and then for the first question when each candidate will have 90 seconds to speak daniel will go first and will alternate from there so neve um whenever you're ready for your opening statement please That's great. Thank you. So, you know, I firmly believe that working in education shouldn't be detrimental to your family life, mental or physical health or absolutely your financial independence. And that's why we need a continuing strong national education union. Now, the NEU, like so many other trade unions, we face a democratic challenge of how to engage with our mass membership to ensure that they are doing so consistently. All members need to see themselves as participants in the decision making process and strategy. The General Secretary needs to ensure that there's a genuine connection between the policy of the union and the broad base of the membership. Under my leadership, the NEU will be a modern, inclusive union. I will ensure that our democratic structures are places where serious debate can take place in a respectful way. 
I came into education like so many others to help unleash the potential of children and young people, but I became an activist in my trade union to stand up for my colleagues and to improve the conditions of their working lives. My commitment as the next General Secretary is to the future of the whole profession and to the education of the next generation. Thank you. That was 55 seconds. Thank you so much, Neve. And Daniel, your turn. Enough is enough. Over the past decade, funding's been eroded, pay has declined, workload has increased, and we've lost our professional control. And every day we witness horrific levels of poverty that so many children face. I am the candidate standing for General Secretary who can ensure positive change. For the last three years, I've worked alongside Kevin Courtney and Mary Balstead as your national president and as a national officer, enabling our union to respond effectively to the COVID pandemic. And under my leadership, we will strengthen our work with other unions and build a closer relationship with NAS UWT, because through uniting every staff room, we will have one voice able to speak for teachers, supply staff and support staff. To build on our successes and be a union that wins change in education, we need a strong and united union to make that case. I will keep our union strong, united, fighting and winning on the issues that matter to our members and children. We will boost pay, reduce workload and reclaim our professional control. Fantastic. Thank you, Daniel. Two very strong opening statements. So let's go into the first question. Our first question for tonight is what makes you the best person to negotiate with the government on behalf of teachers? Um, opening responses to that question are 90 seconds. Daniel, you begin. Well, firstly, I'm experienced in this field. I led the delegations as president to the English and Welsh pay review bodies, have met ministers of state and regularly met with politicians as a national officer and as president. And as general secretary, we will continue to talk with government and with politicians. However, there is something deeper at play. I wish government and those in parliament responded to evidence and reason and responded to those conversations, but they really don't. On pay, we don't negotiate with them directly. It's through the STRB, but our action on pay is what's bringing the government to take the table. On COVID, we didn't negotiate with the government around safety. It was our action on the 3rd of January that won change. On funding, again, we don't negotiate with the government on this. It was our schools cuts campaign in 2017 that won schools some more money. So the real question is, what strategy do you need to win change from government? And that is where I have the strategy. We need to make government and politicians Listen, if you read our vice president's endorsement of me, it states I am the candidate who supported and worked for our current campaign on pay and funding from the beginning. I'm the candidate who built the strategy to get the government around the table. So to get the government around the table in a meaningful way, we need to be an energetic, organised and campaigning union. But to be able to do that effectively, our union needs to be strong and united. And that's where uh, I, I feel I'm absolutely the candidate. The majority of, of districts nominated me four out of five because they understand that I'm the candidate who can make the government listen through a campaigning organised and energetic union that mobilises the mass of our half a million members. Thank you, Daniel. And Neve, the question is, what makes you the best person to negotiate with the government on behalf of teachers? Uh, thank you. Well, I'm a skilled negotiator, but not just in education. I'm the youngest of five sisters. I've been negotiating since I was old enough to walk and talk. 
to negotiate well and to win, you also need to be able to read situations well, to build strong relationships with those that you might not traditionally uh, agree with. And sometimes you have to compromise. I've experienced of not only speaking to the STLB, those appointed people by the government, but I've also been in the room with uh, successive ministers, with politicians, with select committees, but also directly with employers at the Association of Colleges um, or with individual employers uh, themselves. You know, I've done that with schools and college leaders. I've done it with other trade unions and I've won for members. I think as a skilled negotiator, you also need to know when to walk away, uh, when to take a break, when to compose yourself and how to seek counsel from other people to ensure that you are listening to the views of everyone and not getting carried away in your own echo chamber. But negotiation does take two sides and there has to be political will or will from an employer to do that. Uh, and I will negotiate with any employer, any government SPAD or, or any uh, politician, but they have to value education and the profession. And that is one of the biggest challenges currently. So actually, at the moment, what we are doing most of our negotiating and our discussions with, I think it's really important that as General Secretary, you're getting the message of the profession out to the media, but also out to parents and to those members who might not be in trade union meetings to say that actually, uh, as the union, as the General Secretary, that you are the voice of the profession and that we are, are valued uh, and uh, that we aren't uh, being uh, dismissed by politicians who are too busy uh, clawing up their, their own uh, agenda. Mm, thank you, Neve. If we could just keep the answers a bit shorter, please. We did both go over 90 seconds there, not by too much, but um, if we could keep an eye on time, that would be great. I don't really want to cut you off half sentence. Um, if I could move, uh, if I could keep with Neve for this, we're going to have about 10 minutes roughly of structured debate, possibly a little bit more. Um, Neve, you talked about having strong relationships, even with those you disagree with. Is it it, but it's difficult, isn't it, when somebody like Julian Keegan, you know, is trying to gaslight teachers by saying that she wants formal talks, but only, you know, trying to blackmail teachers into stopping strikes in order to talk to them. And also this idea of formal talks, you know, those talks that you had before were just informal. Oh, they don't really matter. It's really difficult to negotiate with that. So what actually what what is it about you that will stand up to Julian Keegan on behalf of teachers? Well, I mean, I've said this before. I have been in talks with uh, top level civil servants, you know, during this dispute about workload. There was never an indication that they were not formal talks, but it did become quite clear that those uh, those officials were distracted by possibly what's going on at number 10. So whilst we think we're in a room negotiating with civil servants and with ministers, actually the control is happening elsewhere. So the call has to be to Keegan. She's the Secretary of State for Education. She has to ensure that it is her putting her case to the Treasury and to number 10 uh, on our behalf. And, and she's really in a difficult position at the moment. After the disclosure of what the Secretary of State you know, uh, for, for Health, what Williamson and and Hancock have been saying about the profession uh, during the pandemic when teachers and support staff and leaders were working extremely hard. She has to distance herself from those, those, uh, those uh, discussions, those WhatsApp messages. And she has to prove that she does value the profession because we thought during the pandemic that the ministers didn't care. Now we know they didn't care. And now the ball is firmly in her court to prove that she does That's value all, education. That, but that's all well and good. You're arguing that Gillian Keegan's in a difficult position, but so far we haven't really seen that she's willing to actually stand up for teachers. And you talk about her taking the case to the, 
to the Treasury and to the government. But, you know, it's going to take a bit more than what we've had so far to actually make her do that. Well, I think what she has said so far is very little. She hasn't shown the political will. What she expected was for any EU members to capitulate, to, to say that actually taking a strike action is too hard. But actually what we have seen is that NEU members, teachers, parents, support staff and leaders have actually all come out saying this is the most important fight of our generation. We're doing this for uh, the, the, the children who have suffered the most during, uh, during COVID, during the pandemic, during decades of cuts. It is her job. She has to have the political will to solve this dispute. So, you know, we have got the parents and uh, and the membership of the NEU on our side. She has to solve the dispute. Otherwise, she will be the Secretary of State that oversees the biggest recruitment and retention crisis in education and won't be able to guarantee to parents that there is a qualified, experienced, committed teacher in every classroom. Thank you, Neve. Um, Dan, I want to bring in Daniel now, um, because we've talked about this political will. Have you been impressed with Gillian Keegan at all since she's become general, not general secretary, education secretary? And do you think she could do more to take, the, you know, to show that political will, as Neve puts it? Well, I don't, I, I, I don't, I think I share the, the view of many uh, teachers uh, and uh, 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 largely unimpressed with um, Gillian Keegan. But look, I wish politicians would just, you know, listen, uh, listen to reason, listen to argument, listen to evidence. But the fact is they don't. Um, And I don't actually think uh, strong relationships with um, politicians in that way really gets us very far as president. I met Nadine Zahawi, incredibly charming uh, man, gives you the impression that he, uh, you know, you can build some sort of strong relationship uh, with them. But of course, it's a relationship that you can't really, really trust. They're very charming people. What we need is professional relationships. But what we need is something more than that, is um, uh, is a campaigning and organised union that brings politicians to the table. And I'm sorry, if it hadn't been for uh, what we are doing at the moment, the campaign around pay and funding that's led to industrial action, Julian Keegan wouldn't be talking to us at all. At least she's gone in the room with Kevin and, and, and Mary. You know, the fact is that they, uh, the government distanced themselves from uh, the uh, issues surrounding pay through the STRB, you know, a government appointed uh, body. Um, you know, there's the, 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 yeah, they, they, where they set the remit and they give this facade of, of independence. Um, you know, we have sort of, you know, began, began to break that by through through this action and at least uh, pulling her pulling around the table. But to answer your question, you know, specifically, am I impressed with Gillian Keegan? No, of course I'm not. But I think that's a view of the profession. Yes, you mentioned, you mentioned listening to the evidence and looking at the evidence and using that to inform decisions. Well, the evidence from the IFS shows that teachers have lost 23% in real terms pay since 2010. Yeah. Are campaigning to put, it, to put teachers' pay back on parity with 2010? Or are you prepared to compromise in order to get an agreement? Well, I think our, I think our long-term aim has to be pay restoration, and I think the evidence points to points to that. So we do have to to begin to to restore levels because the fact of the matter is we have a recruitment and retention crisis, which means that many children are not taught by subject specialists. The government's missing its recruitment targets, and we know that there are a number of issues that have led to that. Of course, pay is one, workload is another, lack of professional control, and and, and so on. But we absolutely, I think, have to restore or uh, teachers pay and move move towards that. Now, I'm not saying uh, 
um, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't accept anything less than a 24% pay rise because that's that's just not the reality of the situation. And also, it's up to our uh, executive and members to make those decisions uh, a, a, a around around that. But I think it's an absolute disgrace that we've lost uh, so much money over the last decade, and including our support staff as well and it's absolutely right that now we are saying enough is enough you know schools are on their knees we're at breaking point uh, and it's time to see a change in our schools thank you daniel um Neve, back to you then um 23 pay um drop for teachers um, in terms of real terms pay since 2010 are you with daniel in terms of a long-term restoration of that back to 2010 levels or uh, and can you are you prepared to put a time scale on it as to when teachers can expect to be paid properly for the job they do well, I mean, that's a really difficult thing to, 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 to gauge. You know, we, we have a recruitment and retention crisis now, uh, and th th it is actually getting worse. So, you know, what we have done is we have taken strike action, uh, and the mandate of the, of the membership is to take strike action for pay restoration, and, and we've been talking about that all along. But when you talk about, you know, time limits... Uh, there has to be a long-term strategy. What, I think what is really important to recognise is that there is no offer. There has been no offer from Gillian Keegan in the current dispute. And when we look at the evidence of working lives of teachers and stress and uh, uh, workload and the impact of top, uh, pay, that teachers are saying that that is the reason why they're not coming into the profession and that's why they're not leaving. So the government have to have a strategy for dealing with now, but also how to keep those teachers in the classroom and how to get more there. And with the evidence that they have published for the, for the next round of STRB, it doesn't look as if they have taken our strike action seriously. So there are two things that need to be negotiated something for this year, but also a renegotiation of what the government is saying. And the IFS has published data saying that there's no reason for them not to do that. They've got more money in tax uh, collection than they thought they would have. And that pu public sector pay increases do not fuel inflation. So the government have got to look at the two issues of pay restoration now. Now, that could be a lump sum. It could be something to make up for high inflation this year with a, a better offer for next year and coming years. But there is no offer. They have not done that. And that's what the position that we are at at the moment. There has been no offer. They are not negotiating yet. And we have now issued, you know, we have more strike days in, in, in place. We're saying you need to come with us for an offer. And the pressure is on her. You know, Scotland have made a better offer. They're making better offers in health. Negotiations are happening. We need to see that from an English government now too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and one final thing before we move on to the next question. Um, you'll be aware of Joe Grady, the General Secretary of the UCU. You'll know that last month she paused strike action for two weeks because she believed that real progress was being made in talks with employees over pay conditions and pensions. Um, but the UCU are back on strike um, 15th, 16th, 17th, 20th, 21st and the 22nd of March. Um, any views, if I start with Daniel, that um, do, would you, did you agree that the UCU should have paused their strikes to step into the olive territory of employers, as she put in there, or would you have done something differently were you in her shoes? If, um, I'm not going to speak ill of uh, Joe Grady or the strategy that she's followed. However, um, I would not be making any decisions around the suspension of action without uh, the agreement of my national executive. I think it's imperative that uh, the, 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 the elected 
representatives of the union make that decision and it doesn't rest solely with a uh, general secretary. Uh, my personal view on um, pausing action without an offer is absolutely not that we don't do that. Uh, and I was very clear um, on, on a personal level when um, uh, Gillian Keegan suggested that we, um, it's, when Gillian Keegan suggested that uh, we um, uh, suspend action for talks, I was absolutely opposed to that because, uh, you know, there was no offer made. Uh, the, um, she mm. hadn't engaged in meaningful di 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 discussion. And uh, excuse me, my son's just uh, crying, so I'm going to have to go. I will be back shortly. No, Dan, you'll let us know when you're back. Um, Neve, what did you think of Joe Grady's decision? Um, any any thoughts? Well, it isn't for one trade union leader to comment on the strategy of another. I think that is very clear. What we do know um, from other action that has been paused is that uh, what we were offered by the Department of Education of pausing our action for serious talks is not the same as what the RCN uh, were, were, were given. We believe that the RCN had had substantial negotiations and discussions with the Department of Health and the Treasury before they were asked to pause their action. Now, I was in the Department of Education when we were discussing workload strategies when the message came through asking us to enter negotiations, serious negotiations on pay the next day on the condition that our action was paused. And I was very clear to the DfE officials at the time is that is not how union democracy works. It was a Tuesday in a half term. Our executive was meeting on the Saturday. Um, you can't, as a trade union elected trade union official, just make that decision to pause action when there, you know, you have to have a democratic member led decision, whether that be consultation with particular officers or an executive as we have now decided it would be. That's not how trade union democracy works. And I think that that shows a naivety on behalf of the government in their strategy for industrial relations and understanding about trade union democracy. Thank you. Um, let's move on to our second question about workload. Um, the question is, how will the NEU tackle unsustainable workload for teachers under your leadership? So how will the NEU tackle unsustainable workload for teachers under your leadership? I'm going to start with Neve on that one for 90 seconds. So there is, it has to be a two pronged strategy for, for workload. Workload is excessive and toxic. Um, and there are two things I think that we can do with that as a strategy. We have to build from the base in the workplace. We are seeing when we're talking to members on the picket line and on rallies, they are stronger workplace groups and they are going back into their schools, into their departments and making decisions about workload to benefit themselves. And that's a good strategy to empower you to make changes for your own workload. But we also have to tackle what is uh, driving that workload. And that is, of course, our accountability system, our league tables, Ofsted, our exam system, uh, but also, um, you know, uh, you know uh, a general turnover of leadership, the, the, all of the uh, workload that is, is driven by that. We know that recruitment and retention has an impact on workload. And so, you know, a, a national strategy, we need to think as a, as a union about what our national strategy would be and how you negotiate that and who you would negotiate it with. I think we have to look 
what members want to do about that. But I think we are seeing more and more that uh, there has to be a reform of our accountability system so that it isn't driving workload and it isn't career ending for our teachers uh, or our, our leaders. So there is a, a motion coming to conference this year, um, again, about a national contract. I think with the industrial strategy we have at the moment, negotiating a, a workforce strategy of how you recruit and retain teachers as a, a national contract is a good way of doing that. But you have to be very careful what is in that and how you are negotiating that and who you're negotiating it with. Thank you, Neve. Um, Daniel, are you there? I am. Uh, apologies about that. I have uh, just bribed him with YouTube. So uh, we're, we're, we're back in the room. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. My question is, how will the NEU tackle unsustainable workload for teachers under your leadership? Well, the government have issued lots of guidance on workload that hasn't really had an impact. People have welcomed it. But, you know, uh, my experience is the same as everyone else across the profession. Uh, you know, there is a real issue with workload. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. And I think uh, you, you, some of it is down to funding, actually. So we have to, to win on funding uh, to see a reduction in workload. The fact is class sizes are too big. There's not enough staff. There's not enough support for uh, children with SEND. Um, and then, of course, there is the, the, the ruthless inspectorate in, in Ofsted. Uh, I want to see a national campaign uh, on workload where we are campaigning for the increase in funding for more staff, uh, for more support for the SEND, obviously to abolish Ofsted, smaller class sizes, less curriculum change and an increase in, in PPA. Now, the government's not been talking about any of this uh, and, you know, to, to, to make those real impacts on, on workload, we do have to, to, to win, on, uh, win, win on funding. Now, Ofsted has such a negative impact on workload. So there'll be a strong campaign to abolish Ofsted in, re in replacement for uh, a, a supportive inspectorate. But I do want to see a strong industrial strategy on workload where, as a union, we are picking disputes on things like excessive marking in schools and then rolling them out into a, 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 to a regional uh, level and then and then national nationally because these wins um wins spread i was you know uh, supporting school in in walton forest on the issue of teaching time and as soon as one school in has got a reduction in teaching time uh, that rolled out to surrounding schools and there was further wins on that as well so national campaigns alongside a strong industrial strategy to uh, bring down unsustainable workload thank you daniel um you've both mentioned offset there um, which I'm not surprised about. And I want to talk about the Confederation of School, School Trusts, which um, early this week um, issued um, its views on how offset should be overhauled. Um, two of the key things which it suggested were um, scrapping the four judgment grade inspection system for schools and also overhauling the complaint system because schools don't have a fair chance at overturning what they believe to be poor officer decisions. They also talked about how there was inconsistency in inspectors' uh, judgments and how, for example, um, 
HMIs, full-time HMIs, would give different judgments to those who are contracted. Um, do we think, Daniel, um, that the what the CST has said about scrapping the full judgment grade inspection system and overhauling the complaint system um, is enough, or do you want Ofsted to be truly abolished? Well, Ofsted is supposed to be a body independent of government, so I'm not too sure how reform can even happen, because then once you start to reform it, the government starts to change it. It's no longer independent of, of government. I do believe Ofsted uh, should be abolished, although, you know, scrapping grades would help. Uh, you know, there's other things that they could do, such as, you know, notification of which term that, that they would be visit, visiting. That would have a huge impact uh, on, on, on workload. But I don't think Ofsted has the support of the profession. It's a toxic brand. The only thing that it accurately measures is poverty. So if you're a school in a deprived area, even if you're making excellent progress, you're more likely to be given a poor judgment. I think it's absolutely toxic and needs, a, a, yeah, needs completely replacing with a supportive inspectorate and a more collaborative approach where, you know, schools work together to improve. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Neve. You, uh, you said back in October 2021, in response to the then um, Shadow Education Secretary Kate Green, Ofsted is a toxic brand beyond reform. They are responsible for unsustainable levels of workload, which have created a teacher and leader recruitment crisis. They need replacing, not more powers to do harm. Do you stand by those comments? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think if you say the word Ofsted to children, you say it to teachers, support staff and leaders, and there is a physical and an emotional reaction to that. It is, it's damaging. Um, it doesn't do what it says on the tin. It doesn't drive school improvement. Daniel is right. It is a better way of judging house prices and uh, parental income than it is. You're more likely to be living in an area of deprivation and uh, go to a school that's degraded, unsatisfactory or requires improvement. Uh, if you live in a high property area, you're more likely to go to a good or an outstanding school. That doesn't help any of our children. They can't afford to move and, and nor should they. Every school should, every area should have a, a good school. I, I think, you know, we have been in discussion with I think all of, all of the education unions are in agreement about this, that there are things that the government could do about workload now, really quick fixes um, about rarely cover, about tasks that shouldn't be done by uh, teachers or, or um, uh, those with a teaching qualification. But Daniel's right when it, that is related to funding because someone would have to do that task. But if you want to... Um, you know, reduce workload and connect that to the accountability system, then you remove, you do remove the grading, you only uh, inspect for safeguarding or financial issues, and you make sure that mats are being uh, inspected as mats and not as individual schools. Um, I think it's, you know, when we've got a system where schools are competing against each other, there isn't a collaborative um, approach, and that does drive workload. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it is uh, good enough for an opposition party, you know, Kate Green said it, but um, uh, Bridget Phillipson has also said that they will look at uh, the system, you know, because it isn't about the system. It's about the relationship with the people in it. Um, I think that is really important. And what I think we talk about an independent expectorate, I think they are independent of government, but actually in the wrong way. They're independent of government and they are quite blatantly able to do what they want to do rather than being driven by the Department of Education and being told how to inspect education. And if the Department of Education uh, had control of Ofsted 
and its inspectorate, then it would be saying, this is what you need to do. You need to increase the time that schools uh, have uh, so that they know the window of when they are being inspected. You need to stop sending in inappropriate, untrained or uh, unrelated inspectors into schools and start taking the system seriously. Well, yes, I mean, the point you made there about, you know, physics teachers doing deep dives in English and, um, you know, secondary teachers doing deep dives into early years is a fair point as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk more about Ofsted. I, I think we could spend the next hour talking about Ofsted and reform if we wanted to. Um, but we do need to talk about another aspect of workload. And Daniel touched on this in terms of curriculum change. Daniel mentioned that um, we want less curriculum change. Um and it's not just curriculum, but also assessments. Now, the NEU um, is very clear or has been very clear about um, replacing terminal exams with um, other forms of assessment. And if I can go back to Daniel, Daniel, um, I hope you're not going to accuse me of stalking you here. But once upon a time, last just at the end of last year, you signed an open letter by the Educators Alliance. And it said, we welcome the suggestion to look again at assessment and to explore the potential of multimodal forms of assessment to enable a wider range of skills, attitudes and abilities to be recognised and celebrated. Will this not increase teacher workload? Well, I think the way that we reduce teacher workload is by removing those pointless bureaucratic uh, tasks that so many of us have to do all the time. You know, there's still triple marking and putting data endlessly, endless meetings, uh, you know, sticking photos in of practical lessons and so on. There's lots of, uh, you know, pointless bureaucratic tasks that we can use to remove. Uh, uh, None of that's uh, yeah. Though, is it? That's seen, that senior leadership teams and trust teams, not um, and local authorities in some cases. That's not Ofsted's fault. Yeah, but it's often to satisfy, uh, you know, fears around an Ofsted inspection. Ofsted and published guidance, don't they? On these has published guidance, but the reality is things haven't changed much because the stakes are so high. If you're given a poor Ofsted, a poor Ofsted judgment. But to get back to your your question about assessments um, and uh, the the letter, yeah, I think there needs to be a discussion uh, in the profession about how we set, uh, assess. I think um, the current way of assessment is, is far too narrow um, and that um, it doesn't, you know, if you're, if you're, if, if there's too much emphasis on one high stakes exam, uh, and I think that can disadvantage uh, many, many children. And in fact, there is a, a discussion amongst business, amongst the CBI and within the government and the Conservative Party about how we assess, you know, I was at the conference, at the Tory party conference last year, and there was a really interesting uh, discussion and debate in which uh, the head of education at Eton was, you know, saying that we should uh, move, move away from from uh, terminal exams and look to a more portfolio-based approach. This is what business wants and this is, um, uh, yeah, this is what industry is looking for because it demonstrates more skills. Um, so, Do we really want our education system and our curriculum and our assessment to be designed not for teachers? Well, I think it needs to be designed on, you know, how, how, how children can best perform and what it, what it mostly demonstrates. I think, you know, uh, the, the emphasis on that high stakes uh, terminal exam uh, that decides the outcome of your life at such a young age is quite a brutal, a brutal way to assess children. It's incredibly narrow and it doesn't demonstrate uh, all the skills that, 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 uh, that you know, that the, the economy is looking for. Mm. Fair point. Um, but I would argue, and I'm going to bring Neve in here, actually, um, that 
uh, well, first of all, Neve, would you support replacing GCSEs as they currently are with um, multimodal forms of assessment, enabling a wider range of skills, aptitudes and abilities to be recognised and celebrated? Well, I don't think it's as simple and it shouldn't be seen to be as simple as just replacing GCSEs. I think it has to be quite a slow process and we have to ensure that the profession is involved in that process and the discussion about it. Because I think as soon as people say, let's replace something, there is a nervous reaction to that. So we know when year nine sats were taken away, what were they replaced with? They were replaced with mock year nine sats and and it didn't solve any of the work teaching to the test or the workload issues. We have to ensure that we have to think about the broader issues of, at the moment, we've got a, an assessment system that is very tick box. It's if, it's if you've not taught it and you've not assessed it, then you can't have done it. And um, it doesn't often, it, you know, it's quite old fashioned. Things have been tinkered around uh, the edges. So, you know, you've reformed a little bit of the uh, A-level curriculum, but actually most of it stays the same. And the reforms to GCSEs in 2017, uh, you know, haven't made that much, uh, have narrowed the curriculum and driven out some of the arts and other subjects. So I think we have to think about it in a way of, are GCSEs appropriate in an education system where the majority of young people stay in education until 19? If they still are, then are they fit for purpose? And we'll talk about that. But actually, the, the growing uh, point, and I agree, is that I don't think they are. Now, you can't then just tinker with the uh, you know, p- p- 16 to 19 curriculum without thinking about what happens in between. And I think one of the biggest issues one of, that are being discussed by teachers, but also by children and young people and families, is... Is the curriculum relevant? Is it enjoyable? Does it give young people the skills to move on to the next stage of their life or in education? There's a huge debate in our English curriculum at the moment about, you know, why are we still teaching some of the the set texts that we're we're teaching and why have some Mm. of the more modern ones been taken out? Why are we still learning 16th century poetry? Are there other things that children want to learn? And I think there has to be a trust in the profession and those experts to think about what it is we want to touch and to, to teach and not enough young people are seeing the relevance of what they are being taught and then they are disengaging and finding it really difficult to be part of that on the side of that then employers are also saying that that young people aren't coming out of school with the skills that they need I don't think that is always the answer I think employers have a responsibility to train and develop young people when they get into the workplace but I think we have to really look at our education system and see how outdated it is particularly compared to other OECD countries interesting thank you i would love to go more on this we are running slightly over so um i would we may come back to those points in a bit um if you want to take part in the debate tonight you can use the hashtag neu debate uh, make sure to tag us in at tt radio official you can tag neve in at neve ms 23 and daniel at daniel kebedy neu um you can if you're listening live in twitter spaces you can use the speech bubble on the bottom right of your device to tweet along using that hashtag neu debate if you're listening back, you can still use any hashtag NEU debate to um, comment on what you have heard so far. Now, Teachers Talk Radio is brought to you in association with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Our third question for tonight is from Amy, and it is, 
about behaviour and exclusions. A trade union works to protect the interests of its members. How does banning exclusions achieve this goal? So the question is, a trade union works to protect the interests of its members. How does banning exclusions achieve this goal? And we start with Daniel for 90 seconds. So I don't, I, I, I don't think anybody's called for a ban on exclusions. I know people have called for uh, a ban on children being excluded from education. And I think that's vitally important. You know, exclusion as a sanction um, uh, has, has been a way to, to manage uh, a, a move for, for, for young people when that has been uh, needed. Um, but there is a real problem at the moment with children being excluded from education, primarily through off-rolling, through illegal exclusions. That's something that has gone, uh, you know, that has, uh, has rocketed over the last uh, decade. You know, I, I, you know, exclusions must always be a last resort. We know there are inequalities, particularly uh, if you're free school uh, meal eligible you're more than twice and more than twice and likely the national rate to be excluded if you uh, you know with an SEN without a statement you're more almost three times national average uh, going to be excluded uh, so we I do you know we have to pay close attention to exclusions but again so much of this is down to funding to the lack of resources to the huge class sizes uh, to the to the lack of uh, specialist support staff um, uh, you know there's things that you you know, our profession, no work, uh, good communication with students, understanding the learning needs, understanding emotional needs, that presence of support staff, consistent support from the SLT, the use of well-being rooms and so on. These things can be used to reduce exclusions. The problem is they're not implemented because schools just don't have the funding and resources to do it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Daniel. And Neve, the question was, a trade union works to protect the interests of its members. How does banning exclusions achieve this goal? Well, again, you know, I, I don't think we do ban exclusions. I don't think that is something that we, we have said. But whenever I've worked in schools and colleges with, with young people that have been at risk of exclusion, you know, I think we have to really recognise that if you are excluded from education, you are more at risk of uh, living in poverty, ill health and uh, um, being caught up in the criminal justice system. So it has huge impacts on uh, young people and their families. Um, but what we have to ensure is that there is a safe school place, an appropriate school place for, for every child. Um, and because of the system that we have, um, that isn't possible at the moment. Um, I've witnessed some dreadful practice in my time of um, managed moves, they're called, you know, children being moved around schools within a trust. Um, and then the trust can say, you know, a trust might have five or six schools and then a trust saying, well, we've tried, we've tried. There's nowhere for that, that child to go. And that child is then out of education. That's really dangerous for society and it's really dangerous for that child. I, you know, I think we have to ensure that we are looking in a much more compassionate way uh, that children have a, a school place that is appropriate for them. Now, that isn't to say that um, staff should feel threatened by violence or threatened by, um, uh, you know, in a, in a situation where they are being asked to teach a child um, that uh, has, has, you know, carried out a, a serious uh, criminal offence, for example, and that has been uh, sometimes an, an issue in the past. Uh, and we have to look at that. But, you know, 
it is really, really important when you, when I work with families, I, I, before I worked in education, I worked with families who uh, were part of the criminal justice system. And when you're seeing children as young as three and four being given internal exclusions for behavior, um, and we're looking at, you know, without asking what is going on in that child's life, what is happening to that family, uh, particularly during the pandemic about mental health, about the lack of support services around schools, that the school has just become the, the last support safety net for so many families uh, that we, you know, I think it would be very dangerous for schools to say, we we can't help we can't do something to help that child or that 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 that, that family we have to make sure that our yeah. members are safe but we have to um, ensure okay. that children are getting an education uh, too i want to just go on to a point that you made about managed moves um i'm at managed moves as far as i'm concerned and you know as a teacher i've taught children who've come to my school on a, on a managed move and i've taught students who've gone to other schools on managed moves um is that just not schools and trusts in particular and even um, national and not national, local authorities acting in the best interest of that student? Certainly the experiences that I've seen are students who actually have had a tough time at the school for whatever reason and actually, you know, and have, you know, downward spiralled and actually it's decided by everybody that a fresh start is what's needed. Absolutely. But I think there has to be involvement of the family and the, and the child uh, the young person to ensure that that is what they want, that they know that it's happening and how it's happening. And then additional support needs to be put in place because moving school midterm, maybe for the third time that you've done it, is really hard. So we have to ensure that there are pastoral support networks in place for that young person. But what I have also witnessed is trusts, large trusts, holding, you know, almost washing their hands of young people and saying, well, we've moved them around our trust three or four times. We aren't taking them anymore. And then that child and that family being left without a school place and local authorities put in a, in a very difficult position of how you then ensure that that young child, um, it, uh, that child is, is in education. And surely, you know, we should be thinking, you know, and, and, and that's why, you know, assessment systems and uh, accountability systems are also really important because schools should should be inclusive and should be safe places for all young people and actually at the moment they aren't and for too many of our young people they're really quite quite horrible places to be in. Thank you. Um, Daniel you mentioned uh, you said to paraphrase but nobody is looking to end exclusions outright. Um, the NEU has in the past been associated with no more exclusions um, whose stated mission is to bring about an end to all exclusionary practices in um, to dismantle the system of second-rate segregated education that persists in the UK and to rebuild our social, political and educational landscapes. No More Exclusions is very clear about bringing about an end to all exclusionary practices um, and has published um, pamphlets on this matter. Should, do you support the NEU's partnership, um, informal or formal, with No More Exclusions? Well, I think no more exclusions uh, take, you know, they take an abolitionist position, uh, a very absolutist position. And that's their right as an independent campaign group that's uh, not, 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 not a part of the any. NEU, but I think you know, in raising uh, such a position, you can then find uh, a middle middle ground. As I as I've said, you know, I, I, there is uh, a t there is appropriate times for children to move to a different school or a different setting. I've spent.
spent a lot of my career working with uh, children who have been excluded from education, uh, from schools uh, and had to come to my provision. And there are absolutely uh, times when that is absolutely right, correct, and in the best interest of that child. I have a real issue with illegal ex exclusions, the tens of thousands of children who've been off-rolled and disappeared uh, from, from, from education. It should be deeply concerning to all of us because it damages us all as a society. When a child uh, is excluded from education, they're more likely to end up in criminal activity. Uh, and there is a very real thing um, called, you know, school to, to, to prison pipeline, uh, which, which supports that. We have to absolutely ensure that no child is excluded from education. Uh, and that is very important that every child has access to uh, a, an educational establishment that suits them. And again, so much of this is down to a lack of funding. And also, I think, um, you know, also workload has a, a, an issue, you know, things like good communication with students and learning, understanding learning needs and emotional needs, mm. um, uh, and, and that needing that consistent support from SLT. A stressed out teacher with too high, high workload is also a problem for, for, for behaviour behavior management. So we have to, to win on funding and workload. But we also have to build um you know a a, a, a you know more um, a, a, yeah more inclusive and supportive uh approach to, to education i think the curriculum is far too too narrow in that regard and it can become a quite an alienating place uh for young people do you think do you think then and i appreciate that the neu and no more exclusion is not um affiliated are not affiliated um but mm -hmm. the as the conference has passed motions um from no more exclusions um do you think that most NEU members would support an abolitionist position on exclusions? Well, I think most NEU members understand that, um, you know, there are times when a, a move to a different setting is in the best interest of the school and the best interest of the child. I also think that no, most NEU members would think that off-rolling is a problem and that children essentially being excluded from education uh, through the back door is, uh, is, is also wrong. You know, our surveys of me members suggest that they're not broadly supportive of things like uh, uh, zero tolerance behaviour policies. They recognise that sanctions have their place, but they're not the most effective way of managing behaviour. You know, it's going back to that, uh, you know, supportive environment, which is what I think most of our profession want uh, and, and desire. But to have that, we need the funding to go with it so that we can employ the staff uh, uh, that go with it. Mm. And Neve, do you think that most NEU members would support an absolutionist position on, uh, or an abolitionist position on exclusions. Daniel there has said that um, they would appreciate that there is at times a need for an exclusion. Um, do you agree? Well, I, I mean, I disagree with something that you said earlier. You said that the NEU had passed, um, uh, or the, that no exclusions had, had spoken at our conference. I think it's really clear to say that we passed a motion that included the phrase no more exclusions. And there was a, a good debate of delegates at conference about what that actually meant and what it means for our members. Now, if a member of, of the NEU or any member of staff in a school or college is assaulted by a, a student or um, you know, there is a serious issue uh, of, of behavior, 
And that child is uh, found, you know, either through the criminal justice system, found guilty of that, that offence, or um, there is, you know, we know that a child, uh, a teacher has been harmed, then we absolutely have to support our members to ensure that they are not put in a position where they should be teaching that child again if they don't wish to. I think that is really important that we are supporting our members in that. But I think what we find is that when you speak to teachers is what they are most concerned about is that if a young person commits an offence or a, you know, a, a behaviour is so destructive that they are not able to be in their classroom, that there is a suitable classroom for them somewhere. And what we see in the profession, and we know that children with special educational need and disability are more likely to be excluded from uh, mainstream schools and less likely to then get a place. And that also happens temporarily when Ofsted come to call and a, and a school leader sometimes makes a decision to say to a child, don't come in today, or you might want to, to go off somewhere else for the day. And we have to make sure that our education system is inclusive for everybody, but that members of staff feel supported and are, are absolutely supported in their behaviour management so, policies. So, so Niamh, when when No More Exclusion said that the NEU had passed their motion, on a moratorium on exclusions, they weren't. They weren't. They weren't telling the truth. Is that right? Well, people that are members of the NEU that are also members of No Exclusions may have had a hand in writing a motion that was that put to our national conference. But it is the NEU members that debated that motion and implemented the motion and discussed what it meant for them. So you know, there are two separate things. Like this is a member-led union it is the neu members that decide what our policy is not external organizations okay thank you um daniel um do you share neve's stance on exclusions and her statement that she made which statement am i to uh, endorse Tom? Uh, but is there anything you would disagree with with what neve has said well, I think I think Neve's, Neve's broadly right. The only thing I would also add um, is, you know, if if we want to reduce exclusion, we really do need to to look at curriculum. Also, you know, you you are you are more likely to be excluded if you're a Black Caribbean boy, uh, if you are a Roma, uh, Gypsy Roma traveller in particular. And I think, you know, we need to look at curriculum uh, as well and ensure that uh, you know children in their rich diversity can see themselves reflected in our schools um so you know it's it, it it can go down to you know we need to improve on things like that as well you know i grew up never seeing black children uh, black people really reflected in in school in in the school literature that i uh, had access to i hope that is starting to change now but there's such a uh, so so much more to do Mm. I should point out that if we look at non-exclusion rates, of course, that if we look, if you are white British, there is a 99.95% chance that you are not going to be excluded. Um, if you're mm -hmm. from a Black Caribbean background, there's a 99.92% chance that you're not going to be excluded. Um, if you're from a um, Gypsy and Roma background, there's a 99.82% chance. Um, when we flip it in that, I, I appreciate we can look at it the other way and that we can look at the disparities. But when we look at it the other way, it does seem as if actually um, that we are that we're we're not we're actually talking about very small numbers of pupils in total. When you look at the that's right. 
when you look at the actual numbers of pupils, um, so the most recent figures that I've got in front of me, that um, 70 um, Black Caribbean um, students were permanently excluded compared to um, 43 from any other Black background. And we're looking at these percentages and actually are, are the numbers that we're talking about statistically valid enough to say that there are huge racial disparities in our education system? Well, Tom, Tom that is broadly right. Most Well, it is right. Most children are not excluded from uh, schools. There is a huge issue around off-rolling uh, and uh, uh, children just disappearing from school, school ro roles. Um, but you're you're right. Broadly, most children remain in the school that they are uh, in. That does not mean that we should not be looking at the disparities, uh, whether it's uh, race um, or any other issue. As I actually I actually believe, you know, race is a, a, an issue with in regards to exclusions. You know, particularly if you're looking at you know uh, Black Caribbean boys and uh, Gypsy Roma Roma traveller. But the fundamental thing here is you are more likely to be poor if you're in those groups. I think class is the most uh, important, important uh, issue when it comes to, to exclusion. Race intersects with that. And so does it if you've um, uh, got SEN, SEND. As I, as I say, say again, you are more than twice, uh, you're twice as likely to be excluded if you're on free school meals. Um, uh, and, you know, three times the national average uh, if you're, you're, you've got SEN uh, and without a statement. Thank you for that, Daniel. Um, I want to move on to the next question. We spent a lot of time on exclusions. Thank you very much for your comments. As a reminder, if you want to take part in the debate, um, use that speech bubble in the bottom right-hand corner of your um, device and use the hashtag NEUDebate. You can tag us in at TT Radio Official. Um, Daniel is at Daniel Kebedy, NEU, and Neve is at Neve MS23. Um, our next question comes from Brett and Laura, and they are NEU members. And the question is, how will your leadership of the NEU promote the voices of women and ethnic minority members? Neve will start on that one, 90 seconds. Like, well, you know, we are a profession of 76% women and uh, we absolutely need to ensure that women are heard. Um, I, I pause slightly there because when you talk about women and ethnic minorities, I want to absolutely say that you know any protective characteristic uh, any minority group in society um, and in the profession absolutely needs to be heard loud and clear but women are not a minority they are in the majority in the profession and within the union um, I think I, I want to think particularly about the statements that we saw from um, uh, from uh, Hancock and Williamson yesterday of two men talking about a profession of women in such a negative way. Um, I think it's really important that we ensure that whatever we are doing, and I will absolutely ensure that as leader, that every time we have a press release, every time we have a meeting, every time we have a gathering of members, that there is a prominence of women's voices there and that it equally reflects the makeup of the community, the workplace um, and the, the workforce in those uh, those organisations. Too often you are, you know, I still go to too many union meetings where there's predominantly male, where it's predominantly non-working members, although they absolutely have their place in our de democratic uh, situations. But we have to make sure that we are talent spotting for the future, that we're encouraging and thinking about how our 
our engagement um, works for women, particularly uh, those with young families. I would ensure that the, uh, the culture of our meetings is inclusive, that they are less likely to be held late at night or in uh, pubs, that we get rid of the perception of a drinking culture at annual conference um, and or at residential events and to make sure that there is a provision for families to be able to attend our events whether they be at the weekend or the evening or in the holidays without having a negative impact on family life. Thank you Neve and Daniel the question to you um, is um, how will you how will your leadership of the MEU promote the voices of women and ethnic minority members? Well, primarily, I'll be a general secretary that fights for for, for the rights of women and ethnic ethnic minority uh, members. You know, I, I you know did have issues this evening with my son, and uh, I uh, took part in. You know, I had uh, shared shared the parental leave of my son uh, when he was uh, a baby as well, and I have a you know good understanding of how difficult it is. Um, when 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 you have children, um, childcare and flexible uh, working is a key issue for our women members. You should be able to be a mother and a teacher, and too many uh, women are forced to go part time to essentially work full time. It's a common feature, and teaching and family life um, is really incompatible. You know, the dropout rate around mid thirties is huge, and that's because family life can't be squared with teaching and that really impacts on women so we need a strong and united union uh, that can fight and win on the issue of workload that is enabled to improve uh, the, the, the culture of the profession so that women in particular can carry on teaching and that will improve education by us having uh, maintaining experienced staff but there's so many uh, barriers to, to, to um, flexible working you know we know also um, um, that, you know, for example, um, if you're a woman, you're 14% less likely to make it to SLT and 20% less likely to make it as a head. So absolutely, we will be a union that fights uh, and for the for the rights of, uh, of women, um, because, it, you know, absolutely at the moment uh, has, uh, you know, it, particularly if you're a woman who goes part time, it really has a detrimental impact on your 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 career. Um, we also need to be a, a union that fights for for ethnic minorities. Um, we would use the term black in, 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 in the union because, you know, black black teachers are 18 percent less likely to be promoted to middle leadership and, and 21 percent less likely to be promoted into to headship. And the fact is, actually, as a, a black male primary teacher, I'm the absolute minority in our profession. And that's a real problem. We need uh, more black teachers um, and black educators. Uh, a, uh, ethnic minority educators in our profession because it's really you know it's 2023 our schools need to reflect uh, our, uh, our our classrooms and you know the lack of uh, ethnic uh, minority teachers is a real problem because it's important that you know all children have uh, role models so on that I'll be looking to, to to encourage and force the government to take some active steps to to encourage encourage uh, encourage uh, you know underrepresented groups into the profession. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I've got a question then linked to that, which is, um, should the NEU um, adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism? Daniel, if I could give you 30 seconds on that one. 
Yeah, well, the, the, these things are for conference. They're not the they're not the the uh, you know the the gift of general secretaries to make that sort of decision. We're a member-led organisation, member-led union. Would, 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 you, things... would, would you speak in favour of the NEU adopting the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism? Kevin Courtney um, said that um, we are engaging with it, um, in his words exactly, the IHRA definition. Would you adopt it? Well, as I say, this is a decision for conference and not not, not the gift of a, a, a general secretary. And as general secretary, I wouldn't be able to speak at, at national national uh, conference. It's not that this is not how we decide policy in the union. Mm-hmm. But, would, but uh, not necessarily at conference. Would you be would you lobby? Would you lobby members? Would you be supporting members to actually adopt this um, this definition of anti-Semitism, which has been accepted by many other organisations and other trade unions? I'll go back to that, Tom. It's really not the role of the the general secretary to lobby to um, to, to, to 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 take a position on these things. It's just it's just not how we do things in, in the NEU. It's done through conference. Okay, thank you, Neve. Would you would you support the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, even in the personal? Aspect? Well, I'm a member of other groups that have adopted that definition, but Daniel is absolutely correct here, and it's really important that we reiterate about what a member-led organisation is. Making decisions on the hoof is not in the gift of the General Secretary, regardless of what your personal position might be. That is in the gift of our national conference. That's the ultimate decision-making body of our union. Now, I, I think it's really important that members understand that, because if members wish us to adopt that definition, then that there is a democratic process for that to happen. I would like to go back to women, uh, not to disparage the, the additional mm-hmm. question, but I think it's, think it's... Back to women it, about two minutes, yeah, but it's really important um, that we recognise that the question was, what do we do to encourage the participation of women in the trade union? Mm-hmm. And we have to make sure that we know the statistics of black women, disabled women, and uh, women over 50 less likely to get promotion and more likely to be put on capability without any uh, any prior notice what we have to do and the general secretary of the union sets the culture of the union we have to ensure that women in the union are taken seriously and when they come to caseworkers mm-hmm. or when they come to members of staff with issues about sexual assault or harassment in the workplace about misogyny about not getting automatic pay progression or being discounted for a promotion or put onto capability that we take them seriously we hear them and we act on their behalf because we will never be able to do you know uh, represent the profession of 76 percent members of the profession if we aren't listening to women and taking those mm-hmm. matters seriously it's very true um daniel do anything you want to add on what neve said about promoting um the voices of women in the neu well I, you know we absolutely i think neve is broadly correct we absolutely need more women uh, active in our union and need to transform uh, participation in 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 that regard uh, and also ensure that you know we are fighting on things like uh, sexism and uh, misogyny you know the, the, is it every aware 
a report, you know, highlighted the fact that, that you know, sexism and misogyny is endemic in our, our school system. But we also need to be fighting on winning on things like, you know, good domestic violence policies, uh, good uh, policies uh, in in schools around uh, the menopause. So we absolutely have to, to, to have that as a priority and, you know, ensure that our women, women's equality work in, in essence has more more resources than it does currently uh, in, in, in the union. Mm, thank you. Um, if I could go back to Neve then, um, in October 2019, the Brent NEU branch um, voted in favour of adopting the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Um, in May 2021, about 18 months later, the member who brought that motion to branch, John Lopez, quit the NEU. Um, he, he said that the NEU isolated him as a Jewish pro-Israel teacher. Um, and in addition, they said, he said about the treatment that he had at his school, um, they were trying to stick three Palestine stickers in my hair. I broke into tears. I couldn't take my class that morning. Kevin Courtney wrote to him to encourage him to come back into the NEU. Would you have done anything differently had you been General Secretary? Sorry, are you asking me? Yes. Oh, that, that isn't a case that I know about, and it would be wrong of me to comment on a, an individual's case, whether they are still a member or not a member. However, I think we have to be clear that the union has to be, you know, any member that brings forward a case of uh, an allegation of un, uh, ill treatment, bullying, harassment, uh, racism within the trade union movement, then we have to take that seriously. There have been a number of reports recently, uh, external reports into trade unions about misogyny, about racism and, uh, and about other uh, issues. And I don't believe for a moment that the NEU is a racist or a misogynist organisation, but we do not want to be party to one of those investigations in years to come. So we have to ensure that our policies around the treatment of our members um, is really clear that no member should be harassed for their beliefs uh, uh, and uh, they should be supported and protected through our internal systems to make sure that they feel safe as a member. But I'm not going to comment on a case that I don't know about or haven't got prior uh, knowledge of and I don't think that's fair to that, that member. Okay, thank you. Um, Daniel, would you have done anything differently to Kevin Courtney in that case? Well, I think Kevin was right to write to the member and appeal to them to, to, to remain in the union. It's really important that our union is uh, open to people of a, a variety of uh, views and op opinions. I don't know the specifics of, uh, of John's case, but it is absolutely wrong uh, to be, you know, sticking free Palestine on you know targeting Jewish people with that sort of uh you know that that sort of stuff because you know Jewish people are not responsible for for the actions of of the state of Israel and I really want the uh, NEU to be at the forefront of fighting all forms of discrimination. Thank you for that answer Daniel and thank you both for your responses to that question. Um We've got question number five now, which um, we will start with. Let me just check my notes. That is Daniel first of this one. Question number five. Um, it comes from an unnamed NEU member. Um, is it time to integrate private schools into the state system? 90 seconds, Daniel. Is it time to integrate private schools into the state system? 
I would like to see the state system as well funded as our private as private schools, essentially. That's how I would like it to happen. When you look at, you know, what Eton have access to in the, in regards to the arts and to music, you know, multiple music studios uh, and, uh, you know, orchestras and so on. I want our children to have access to, to that. So I'm not really focused on, you know, uh, you know, uh, into integration i want to see an improvement in comprehensive uh, edu ed education essentially thank you and neve i think we have to be really careful when we generalize things about the independent sector some independent schools are really well resourced um and uh, some aren't you know there's never uh, as daniel said it, uh, we absolutely completely underfund our state education system here when you compare it to the high-end uh, independent sector schools but there are um you know and our members work in in those schools um but there are some independent schools um that uh, are where the conditions are very poor um where the members uh, working conditions are extremely poor and i think we have to think about how we support those members there have been incidents where schools have not been financially viable and they have then uh, turned into state schools i think we need to look at what the processes for those things are and how we support members that teach in those schools and and, and how they do that but you know what we really should be doing is looking at what does it take to fund uh, you know education and that that that's never been worked out you know what does it what does good education look like if good education looks like the child in a GCSE class sitting in a class of 12 because that's what happens in lots of very good independent schools and they get good results what would it cost to do that for the state system so that every child has that opportunity Thank you. Um, if I can stick with you then, Neve, um, 44% of members of parliament have received a private education, 65% of cabinet ministers have received a private education, but, pri but uh, pupils in the private sector of education make up just 7% of total pupil numbers. Surely we're only going to get the changes we need in education if government and if parliament represent people who've gone to state schools who know what conditions are like rather than rather than a private school experience, many of whom have gone to um, Eton, to Charterhouse, to Eastbourne, within, among the armour majors of the cabinet. Surely we're only going to get that change if our parliamentarians and our ministers have been through the state school system themselves. Well, well, that's about lots of things, isn't it? That's about how do we get people from different walks of life in society to stand as politicians. It's quite difficult to get people to stand as politicians because, you know, it, it's, it's not a very nice job to do. I, I really admire people from working class backgrounds, from the trade union movement um, and from different, you know, particularly women who stand for, for parliament. I, I don't know if I would want to do it. I think it's deeper than that. You know, you talk about the 7%. It's actually about four schools and three universities isn't it so it's not even a diversity within the independent sector so you know absolutely all organizations should represent a, you know a diverse work 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 you know diverse uh, people from from our society that's not the, the political system that we've got so if you want to look at why don't people from you know parkside community college in cambridge why don't they stand for 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 parliament it's because they don't see it as being relevant to them if we want to see politics as being relevant then our current politicians have got to start listening to what people on the street to what teachers to what nurses and what paramedics are saying that we want from our society that would make 
people want to stand to be part of a part of government i think you know that your question about what do we want from our education system is much more fundamental than that and we've talked about that about assessment about curriculum about rich diversity well if you've got a class of 12 and you've got a slightly longer educational day because children stay to get uh, their evening meal maybe before they go home or they have school on a saturday you've got much more time to do the rich enhancing education that all children deserve and that's the education system that we should be providing for all children. Thank you. Um, Daniel, under Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party actually voted at their... Con- and I appreciate the NU and Labour are not affiliated. Um, the Labour Party did endorse abolishing private schools by removing their charitable status and redistributing their endowments. Um, at the time, um, this was described... Um, very unfavourably by the Headmasters and Headmistresses Conference as a decision based on ignorance and the desire to damage by Fiona Bolton, the chair of that conference. Do you agree with her? Well, I think there's evidence um, uh, in Europe, particularly Finland, where, you know, you uh, have an integrated sector, no, no, no private schools, no two-tier system, and, and, and that improves the educational outcomes for, for everyone. I mean... I think you know there is there is work to to do around uh, the independent sector. I think you know we absolutely uh, need to uh, defend pensions within that sector uh, and fight for uh, decent pay unit for our, our our members in there. Do you know that you know for example school fees have gone up sixty percent in uh, real terms in the last twenty years according to the IFS, but the pay of uh, of staff uh, has been held down and their pensions have been under attack so that's a a, that's a real problem because it does make um movement between the two sectors uh largely uh well very difficult um but you know despite the fees going up so much private school numbers as a percentage have remained uh largely static and i think it's pretty outstanding that vat isn't already on school fees because it is a luxury good and absolutely some of that money can be used to improve uh comprehensive uh education Thank you. Um, we know that the Girls Day School Trust um, were in dispute um, with their members over withdrawing from teachers' pension scheme. Um, we know that over 300 independent schools have decided to, <coughs> pardon, pardon me, to decided to leave the teachers' pension scheme. Um, the NEU is obviously campaigning, um, and I know independent schools near me, um, their members have been out on strike to remain in the teachers' pension scheme. Um, some of whom have been successful um are we going to see more of this coming are we going do we think we're going to see more independent schools leaving the teachers pension scheme and what do we think can be done to encourage independent schools to stay in the teachers pension schemes when the money simply isn't there in many cases daniel if i could come to you briefly on that one well, as I say, school fees have gone up 60% in real terms over the last 20 years. Um, so I, I, I can't see the financial argument uh, for moving away from the TPS. Uh, we saw a lot of it, um, obviously, uh, coming out of the, the, the pandemic, where the argument was where we haven't been able to accrue a, 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 as as much in fees. But look, I passionately, as president, uh, got involved in the defensive TPS um, the campaign. Uh, you know, in fact, it was some of my first experiences 
chances of, of, of any anywhere near a private school. You know, I went only only ever knew comps up until uh, that point. Um, but I view it as a thin end of the wedge. You know, if they can get the pensions in the independent sector, it'll be academies next, and then it'll be the rest of us who work in local authority schools after that. So it's a vital fight. Uh, and you know, the strategy is, you know, we need to have uh, our organising team uh, really focused on 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 this fight in the union and ensure that where, that whenever there is a move to move away from the TPS in the school that there is a dispute uh, on that because it's a uh, it's largely a choice essentially to move away from it and Neve what can be a number you know with so many independent schools trying to leave the teachers pension scheme some succeeding some not succeeding um, what can be done to keep these teachers in independent schools in the teachers pension scheme beyond what the NEU has already been doing well, I think it's a continuous uh, organising uh, uh, strategy. You know, we've got 30,000 members um, in the independent sector. They often, they're not all gold-plated and working in, in Eton or, or, or Harrow or Winchester. Some of them are in very small schools. Um, they often have uh, some really difficult housing contractual um, uh arrangements they work long hours over weekends um, and, and evenings and what we have to do is ensure that we are collectivizing and organizing and representing those members so that they can win the best conditions for themselves that you know most teachers um, that work in the independent sector actually started working and were trained in in the state sector and there is a lot of movement uh, between uh, the, the sectors. So we have to ensure that our members are able to do that. And the independent schools, I mean, I've met with um, different bodies that represent independent schools. They have, they, they recognise that they are also seeing a recruitment and retention crisis when they move away from terms and conditions that are attractive to those members. So we have to ensure that the members that work in that sector are as equally supported as the members that work in the state sector, because both sectors are reliant on, on members of staff being able to move around from one to the other. Thank you, Neve. Our final question, but before our final question, um, this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Our final question um, is from Pippa, who is an NEU member, and it is how will you ensure that the NEU continues and furthers its international solidarity work? How will you ensure that the NEU continues and furthers its international solidarity work? I believe we start with Neve. Well, I think it's really important. It's a really important part of the work that we do. Um, it's written in the objects of the union. It was something that was important for us to develop uh, when we, we formed the union. It is something that is of interest to, to our members, but also to children and young people. We're global citizens. We, we know when there are instances of uh, war or conflict that the biggest impact is on children education um, and women and those are issues that impact on on our members that they want to support members around the world so you know I think it's really important that we continue with our work about uh, promoting and supporting trade unions in in countries of conflict we've done excellent work uh, with teaching unions in Poland and Ukraine uh, but we also 
work with uh, our Palestinian uh, colleagues. And, and actually we've seen, I, I think something that we have seen there about, we've talked tonight about children seeing themselves in the curriculum, that that is really important for children in areas of conflict, that they see themselves in the curriculum that they're being taught. And where you have war and conflict, often the first thing that a, a totalitarian state does is remove parts of education so you see the children you know girls in the Taliban uh, girls in Afghanistan being removed from education you see children in Palestine not being able to learn about their own history and if we're saying that that's not right for our children here then it also isn't right for children around the world so I'd like to see us really expanding what we do about supporting teachers around the world with curriculum development but also looking at human rights and the impact that education has in war and conflict around the world. Thank you, Neve. And Daniel, the same question to you, please. How will you ensure that the NEU continues and furthers its international solidarity work? Well, uh, I'm a socialist. I believe in international solidarity as a central you know, thread of my core belief, solidarity uh, across borders uh, with oppressed people uh, around, around, around the world. I'm immensely proud of the work that the union does internationally, uh, whether it's, you know, standing with... Uh, teachers in Colombia who are under attack, the most dangerous place uh, to be a, a teacher in the world, the people of Palestine, standing with uh, trade unions in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, taking on Bridge International. Uh, you know, our international work is absolutely safe uh, with me as General Secretary, and we will look to develop that in, in, in many ways. I want to see us uh, more taking a more collaborative approach to, to what education should look like, because, you know, there's a desire largely around the world to, to, to ensure that it's uh, run by private interests, uh, where there's a narrow curriculum planned largely away from the, the school and, and, and generally uh, cheapened. And in the long run, I think there will be a push towards AI. We're only going to push back against this by standing uh, internationally uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder across, across borders. So that's how. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I'll, I appreciate we only have about seven minutes left, so I'm going to keep the discussion here brief. And I wanted to talk about Cuba um, because the NEU has sent um, delegates and delegations to Cuba in the past um, where many independent trade unionists are suffering police harassment and imprisonment. Will this continue if become General Secretary? I want to start with Daniel on that one, please. So I stand in solidarity with the Cuban people against the illegal uh, blockade that they currently live under. Absolutely. Um, I'm very proud that our union sends educational uh, materials out, out to, to, to Cuba to help teachers uh, have the resources to teach children because they, they quite frankly can't access them through the illegal uh, blockade that they currently live under. So, yeah, I stand with the people of Cuba uh, against that blockade. But you do appreciate, of course, that if the NEU were in Cuba, it wouldn't be able to exist in its current form. Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure on the, 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 I'm not sure on that question. Essentially, well, we know we know that in Cuba, the Worker Central Union comprises the 19 official member unions. It does comprise an astonishing 98% of the working population. One might argue that if we had 98% of workers in the United Kingdom in a trade union, that we may um, have better paying conditions. But ultimately, those member unions are ultimately made up of the highest ranking leaders of the Communist Party in Cuba. So if you take the General Secretary of the um, Education, Science and Sports Workers Union, Ulises 
Giate. Um, he is a member of a, he's a high ranking member of the Communist Party, and members are and leaders of the unions are not elected by direct vote. So if we were in Cuba, you wouldn't be able to run for election in the vote with a direct vote, and the NEU would not be able to exist independent of government. I'm 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 not I'm not entirely sure uh, on on that. Trade unions are not not illegal in the Cuba and have have the right to strike. And you know we've had representatives of the the, the Cuban teachers union over, and we send delegations. Uh, and uh, I've met met Nyerka, and um, who is the general secretary, by the way, it's a woman called Nyerka. Uh, my, um, my, my my knowledge is all out of date then. Yeah, and you know their union is directly involved in the decisions around education work. It's a far more collaborative approach between the trade union and government, far more than what we have access to here. You know, we can't expect in in, in Britain to have ninety percent collaboration is only possible because of the um, CTC, the Central Trabajadores de Cuba, is basically an arm of the Cuban government. Well, I'm. I'm, we know, I'm not. Into... If we look at the example, uh, as a history teacher here, I've just been teaching the Constitution and Government of the Soviet Union this afternoon, and yeah. how, and how Trotsky ensured that all trade unions in the Soviet Union were brought under control of um, of Sobnakum in the Central Committee, and the same thing is happening in Cuba. Where so actually... in, in in Cuba, education <laughs> reform is discussed. Is impossible. In, in, in Cuba, education reform is discussed by teachers in meetings in pretty much every workplace. And, and it, that tends to be what, what drives change in government. But fundamentally here, I stand in solidarity with the teachers of Cuba against a blockade in which they can't, mm-hmm. which is imposed by the United States, the biggest, uh, you know, biggest power in the world, which is preventing Cuban teachers from having access to the basic resources needed to teach. And I'm very proud that our union sends out resources as an act of solidarity. No, I appreciate the point you've made there about Cuban teachers having access to inferior resources. And I've been looking at the statistics and how much of the and how many Cuban teachers are having to make their own resources rather than rely on alternate resources. So it's an absolutely fair point that you make. Um, Neve, will under if you were general secretary, will you be supporting delegations to Cuba? Look, uh, uh, we've said this before, uh, you know, that's a member decision. So we often have um motions and discussions from members that that want to go to other countries and have international delegations what i think is fundamental is that when we are having international delegations wherever they may be cuba palestine um cambodia wherever that we are fundamentally going there to look at education, supporting teachers, supporting trade unions, supporting fundamental human rights and the access to education. That is what we're going there for. We're not going there for any other reason other than to promote human rights, trade union activity, democracy and children and education. Now, thankfully, we live in, an, in a, a country at the moment where people still have the free will to join a union or not. And 50,000 more members have joined in the last couple of months. But we have 
very undemocratic trade union laws in this country. And whilst it's really important that we look at international solidarity, we often also have to talk to our international colleagues about the anti-trade union laws that we are dealing with in this country. So when you go on international delegations, you're often learning from other countries about how you deal with politicians in this country. You know, we are global citizens. Our, 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 the objects of our union are about encouraging international solidarity, about um, supporting trade unions, uh, teachers and education and children and families through war and conflict. And that is really important to the values of the union. Thank you. Um, we have run out of time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have 60 seconds from Neve and Daniel, who are going to make their closing statements. And then we're going to wrap up. Um, Daniel, it starts with your closing statement. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you for having a very having us on to have a very rich uh, discussion and debate. Look, for, for our union to be effective, the next general secretary must have the support of the national officers. They must have the support of the national executive. They must have the support of our activist base. I have that support. Four out of five districts nominated me because they know I'm the candidate who can ensure positive change in education. I'm the candidate who can keep us strong and united and fighting and winning on the issues that matter to our members. And under my leadership, we will thrive. So if you want to see more control over your working life, vote Daniel Kebedi. If you want more time with your family, vote Daniel Kebedi. If you want to reverse the decline in education, vote Daniel. And if you want to be valued as a professional as you should be, vote Daniel Kebedi. It's only a strong and united union that can win. I'm the candidate who can build on Kevin and Mary's achievements. We will be outward looking, vibrant and campaigning. But fundamentally, we will be a union that improves your life and the life of our children. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. And Neve, your closing statement. Uh, thank you. So, you know, I've spoken a lot tonight about democracy and what I would like, if anything comes out of this uh, this broadcast and the podcast to come, is I want members of the NEU to engage in this election process. Now, 50% of members voted in our recent strike action ballot, but traditionally in elections for positions, only between 6 and 10% of members vote. I'm sure Daniel will agree that the decision of who will lead the union, filling the shoes of Mary and Kevin, building on everything that we have done so far, um, uh, is a decision that is too important to leave to just 6% of the union too important to leave to chance. So my final words are to ask all members of the union to engage in the process, use your vote and make your voice heard. It's too important. Thank you. Thank you, Neve. And I just want to say a huge thank you to Daniel and to Neve for giving up 90 minutes of their time this evening. They could have easily chosen not to. And I appreciate it. it's been a very busy week for the NEU and for elected officials in the NEU this week with your regional strike action and ongoing talks and potentially national strike action, certainly scheduled in, um, in God, goodness me, it's just under two weeks time. So I want to give Daniel and Neve a massive thank you from everybody at Teachers Talk Radio for coming on and for being frank and for being honest and for setting out their platforms. We will be, this show will be available to listen back on demand um, via Teachers Talk Radio very, very soon. Um, and yes, voting closes on the 31st of March. So if you are an NEU member and you haven't voted yet, I hope that this show has been very useful. So thank you to Daniel and thank you to Neve. Um, we are back tomorrow on Teachers Talk Radio. On, we will have a weekly review on Sunday as well, which will not be hosted 
hosted by me this Sunday. It'll be hosted by Lucy. Um, and so I hope you can join us for a weekend of Teachers Talk Radio action. I want to fake Daniel and I want to fake Neve and I want to wish you all a very happy weekend. I will be drinking a Cuba Libre. Good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.